Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, June 5, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show. Thanks so much for joining us. My guest today is the first ever presidential candidate we've interviewed on the show, stand-up comedian and TV host Ben Glebe. You might know Ben from such shows as Chelsea Lately, Idiot Test on the Game Show Network, The Last Week on Earth podcast for Kevin Smith, and hey, The Happy Hour with Stephanie Miller on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Ben's campaign website is Gleeb2020.com. That's G-L-E-I-B-2020.com. Follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Gleeb. Today we're going to chat about defeating Trump and whether a comedian can bring about change in Washington when so many presidents have failed to break through the noise. Okay, let's talk with presidential candidate Ben Gleeb. You know, I remember you specifically from uh, Chelsea Lately, but the thing I remember most about you is from late last August when you uh, absolutely hammered a pro-Trump heckler at one of your shows. I think it was late. It was August, right? It was this past August. Listen, I've blocked it out of my active memory, but I do remember (laughs) vaguely that that is around the time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you just totally nailed this person. Uh, First of all, the duck mouth bit was hysterical, but your response to the heckler was genius. I know you're trying to block it out, but can you tell us what happened that night? Sure. So I was on stage in Rosemont, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and just doing my normal headline set, which usually has some politics in it, but Mm. not that much. And, you know, it depends on the night, but if it's a late show on a Saturday, I like to usually give people a little bit more of a respite from politics yeah. but i do dip in for a few minutes and it's nothing too intense some some light trump jokes and this woman heckles me shouts don't talk about the donald and she i was said, generous without knowing she sounded there use the uh the name the donald she did the donald yes donald. not only oh protecting our president but protecting his business image <laughs> that's right and so and but and the, so the, the way I you handled it was great Thank you. I hit her with some with some good heckle response that you know I'm pretty good at doing, and any any road traveling headliner has developed the skills of. But mine, you know, had the political tinges to it of 
tying in her wanting to squelch my free speech with how they would exactly respond if somebody made fun of Putin and Russia. And then I proceeded instead to go hard at Trump for the next five minutes or so. (laughs) And the crowd loved it. And it was great. And that show ended and I went outside in the lobby to greet the crowd. Like I always do. Like I love doing. And uh, another Trump supporter came up to me and said, if I continue to talk about the president like that, I will get a bullet in the back of the head. Oh my God. See, now that's, did you include that in the YouTube video? I don't remember seeing that. That was a, did you you recount that story? Yes, I did. You must've seen the short one. I, I, the one that went really viral and got 3.8 million views is the one where um, I tell the whole story and I show much more of how hard I hit Trump and the jokes too. Um, Originally there was a two minute clip, but then the, the six minute one tells the whole story and the guy said to me, you shouldn't talk about our president like that. You'll get a bullet in the back of the head, which also cowardly. Nice. You're going to shoot some shooting in the front of the head. Yeah, yeah. And I said to him, um, look, obviously that's terrifying to hear, and you sh- should not say that to somebody, but if that's what has to happen, so be it. Because I am not going to back down just because Trump's trying to weaponize his supporters. Right. And I'm not going to shrink down and be quiet just because Trump doesn't like hearing dissenting opinions. That's what America is built on is speaking truth to power. And so uh, instead of quietening down, instead of not telling that kind of joke again, I went the other way and decided to run for president of the United States. Yeah. You know what? That is maybe the greatest reaction to a heckler. (laughs) <laughs> I've ever heard of like, okay, you know what, fuckers, we're you're gonna heckle me, and I'm gonna get back at you be, by running for president by literally taking that man's job away. That's what you're attempting. Yeah, and that you no can doubt. can you kind of trace the decision to run all the way back to that heckler, or is this something that's been percolating for a long time? That was a big moment. That was a big a big moment that pushed my decision towards that. I've been thinking about it for a little while before that. But um, but I was not sure if I would do it or not, not sure if people would support me or not, if there was an appetite for me to run, if people did agree with my calculus that a comedian would be uniquely suited to make sure we stop Trump and actually win this time, because it doesn't matter how many 23 progressive candidates you got, yeah. if they end up arguing about the minute differences in their policies and then lose to Trump again, because none of them know how to take on the anomaly. That is the greatest heckler in political history. If none of them know how to trash talk back, but instead just, just stay the cautious people that most politicians are, we'll lose again. But I didn't know if anybody else agreed with that. And then even just the comments of this video that had millions of views aside from the Trump supporters, which included more death threats and more attacks. I'm sure the other side the side that I consider the good side, the good people mm-hmm. who don't support death threats and squelching free speech were so inspiring and thanking me for my patriotism and for standing up for what America is. And I realized that what I, I guess what I had done that resonated with people there was the exact opposite of what Donald Trump does and stands yeah. for. And so it really solidified that there's maybe some appetite there for what I could bring to the race. How do you explain this uh, almost cult-like support for Donald Trump? And it's not just his supporters, not just the red hats that we see in his rally crowds, but even the people around him who he is so willing to throw under a bus. Why are they so willing 
to, to, in some cases, go to jail to defend that guy. It's a very confusing situation. I can only guess three things. I think, one, it's just they're drunk with power, (laughs) and they're people whose moral code falls a distant fifth place, probably, to being near power, being able to control parts of our country and being that close to the most powerful man in the world. And I think that's disgusting. I think two, um, for whatever reason, he just is, he's so good at being a bully that he intimidates people. Once you're in a circle, I think he intimidates you into not speaking out. And then thirdly, um, he hypnotizes them. I believe he hypnotizes them. I mean, just the way he talks, he's always like, he boils his things down to a very simple message and he goes, wall, 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 I'm going to build a wall. Yeah. You're getting very sleepy, wall, wall, look at my tiny spinning hand. And you just completely get in a daze and you leave that White House and you're like, I don't know what happened, but I think we need a wall. I know that. And our president must wear tiny gloves. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's something along the lines of him putting his uh, supporters into almost a, like a meditative state with a mantra, the way he repeats the same things over and over again, even in the context of a single sentence where it's almost like a haiku or he'll start one place, go to the next place in the middle of the sentence and then back end up back with the first phrase that he used at the top of the sentence. And so it's that kind of repetition that almost is like a uh, almost like a Buddhist mantra. Like and then everyone is in this trance like state where they can't help but to support him. I mean, may, this really obviously that's out there. But I mean, that's that's something that he does. I've never seen yeah. I've never seen any politician with the message discipline of Donald J. Trump. Yes, even and somehow has message discipline even when he's the most ADD riddled all over the place. <laughs> he still finds his way back to his simple messages. He'll go 12 places in one sentence, but still gets that message that he needs to get across. It's like the most organized, disoriented speech patterns you'll ever see. Yeah. And he also has skills I've never seen a politician have before where they all, of course, lie and contradict himself. But he does it all the time within one sentence. Right. Like in the campaign. This is an exact quote. He one time in an interview said, look, I would never say that Hillary is not qualified to be president, but she's not. <laughs> you just said you would never say that. You just broke a campaign promise one second later. That is some Guinness Book of World Records shit right there. It's just amazing. You know, he said... And he just- I was just going to say, well, he did something very similar today. He did something with uh, with Meghan Markle where he was explaining, I think, to Pierce Morgan. He was saying, oh, I never called her nasty. I just said she was nasty. Yeah, I never said she was nasty. I said, didn't know she was nasty. Look over here. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. He gave a speech in Poland a few months back and was supposed to be talking not about Russian interference in our elections, but couldn't help but tangent. And... He said, I'm slightly paraphrasing, but the exact message contained in one sentence was the following. Look, we don't know if it was Russia. They interfered. Could have been Russia. Could have been a lot of places. (laughs) But we do know that Obama knew it was Russia and he should have done more. (laughs) That's amazing. Amazing. On God's green earth, can you say both of those things? Very easy. Obama knew. I do not know. Obama know. Me no, no. (laughs) Obama black, me white. 
Yeah. The guy is a monster. He's you an know, orange monster and needs to be stopped. Right, he is. And and the thing that I notice a lot is they're often, and whether it's Trump or his people, often admitting the truth in the context of denying the truth. It's it's kind of startling where he'll say like, uh, oh, oh, yeah. oh, the, uh, what, what did he say? Oh, the leak is real, but the news is fake. That's one of his more classic admissions that the, the thing right. that was reported on in whatever the failing New York Times or whatever the article happens to be. Oh, the, the leak that they received, that was totally real, but the way they reported it was totally fake. It doesn't make any sense, right. but at the same time, he's it confessing make any sense. Yeah, that their source is accurate. He's he's saying that their source is 100% accurate, like actually copping to the fact that the information that whoever received was real. But then, of course, the news right. is fake. It's a, somehow there's a transformation right. there that we don't understand. He's defying the laws our, of physics. He defies the laws of physics. His hair defies the laws of gravity. <laughs> Look, it, it's, it's completely confusing. Yeah. And... Also, the news media really has to step up their game into they're so afraid these days to actually report, to actually come to their own conclusions because they've, I think, bent their knee towards Trump calling them fake news that they're running scared. Mm. And it's ridiculous. Take the Jared Kushner interview the other day. It was an Axios interview, right? Mm. And he, the one that aired on HBO, and the interviewer who was great, when you said to him, do you think Donald Trump is racist? And the interviewer said, I've never seen him do anything. And, and uh, Kushner said, I've never seen him do anything racist. And then the interviewer goes, well, was the birtherism movement racist? And Kushner goes, I, I was not part of that. I, I was not part of that. I know you weren't, yeah. but was it racist? I was not part of that. I don't, I don't. So when somebody does not say that was not racist, when a moment ago they did say something else was not racist, the headline is Jared Kushner admits Donald Trump is racist. Yes. Admits birther movement is racist. But instead they say he equivocated and certainly didn't say one way or the other. No, he did. Yeah. When you don't say the words he's racist because he's your father-in-law and you actually pause long and do not say it's not racist, you're saying he's racist. You have to take some of these hints a little bit easier. That's right. I mean, it's amazing what happens when you get reporters and journalists who aren't part of the horseshit machine asking these guys questions. Right. Because, again, you know, all you need to do is go to that exchange with Jared Kushner and find out, oh, my God, you can actually wind your way through all of the the bullshit that the the Trump people are are so good at, and all you got to do is ask them right. Direct, the the right questions in a direct way instead of either yes or no questions or you know the the, the bullshit that Trump always goes through is he's on his way out to Marine One, you know, where he stops by the gaggle of reporters and is asking questions. But of course, he's carefully handpicking those questions, but the people he always lands on end up with you know just feeding him. Uh, uh, lines to to trigger basically what are verbal tweets. Like he's always giving verbal versions of uh, what he tweets out on that uh, South Lawn, and uh, and it's all because he's not getting the challenging questions that he deserves to get. It seems to me as if there's no one who's easier to nail with a challenging question. I mean, my God, Lester Holt, for God's sake, what about Russia? Oh yeah, you know, I thought to myself this whole Russia thing, and he and he just blurts out the truth right then and there. And that's all you need to do. That's all it yeah. requires is just to ask him a, a pointed, salient question, and he's going to blurt the truth, except that that so seldom happens, doesn't it? Right. And on a, re on a related note, it does seldom happen, but on a related note, 
Hey, Bob Mueller, next time, could you just tell us at the beginning, <laughs> I'm not legally allowed to find him guilty, so don't waste yeah. your time. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's good God. That's an entirely other, other topic of conversation, the fact that uh, yes, Bob Mueller has turned out to be, in my mind, uh, anticlimactic in some ways. I mean, obviously, we've learned lots of information from him, and I don't want to denigrate necessarily the entire scope of his investigation, but the way that he has presented it has been, uh, you know, I guess indicative of a different time, as if he's investigating George H.W. Bush or someone like just a completely ordinary president right. instead of this profoundly criminal, profoundly compromised president who's clearly in the pocket of uh, Vladimir Putin. And, and, you know, Robert Mueller had to have seen at some point that Donald Trump is compromised since he's he's seen some of the counterintelligence information and handed it back to the FBI for them to complete that portion of the investigation. But he has to know and therefore he has to know and recognize the urgency, right? Like he, it seems like Robert Mueller doesn't understand the urgency of the very things that he's reporting on. Am I am I reading that correctly? Right. No, I agree 100%. I don't understand. And it's a and I know Mueller's a Republican, yeah. but I don't that's the biggest problem with Democrats these days too. And I'm running as a Democrat to help change this is that when you're fighting for your life, when you're fighting for your country, when you're fighting for your values, for everything you hold dear, that is not a time to follow every bit of procedure or precedent, that is not a time to be polite. Mm. So the Democrats need to stop being polite. I disagree with when you go low, when they go low, we go high. I say when, when they go low, that's the perfect time to step on them <laughs> and make right. sure your idea gets across. Yeah, They're yeah. down there, you must win, you're fighting for your life. The environment is crumbling, our planet is crumbling, our values, our institutions, even the concept of truth. We must fight with our teeth and our nails to win, not be polite. And Robert Mueller, I don't care if the Justice Department that appointed you says, well, you're not allowed to indict a sitting president. We all know if he came out saying that he was indicted, that would have stood. Mm-hmm. That would have stand. That would have stood. And if not, then you come out of your press conference and in your report and specifically say, I would have yeah. found him guilty and indicted him, but I, under precedent, cannot. So this would have to be handled by impeachment proceedings. And he did say that. He just didn't say it in as many explicit words as that. He talked around it a bit. He did say that. That was the message of his press conference, too. And, of course, the, the, the media missed the, the big quote from his press conference because he came out there, and the one quote, what was it that got all the coverage, basically where he said, I did not, if I were going to exonerate Trump, I, I, I would have said so. Right. But right. that wasn't the big quote. The big quote that no one covered was the next one when he, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but he said almost exactly, because I am not, because the Justice Department is not able to indict a sitting president, it would need to be done through other channels. That was him saying to Congress, impeach him, this is your job. And I get the sense that a lot of the uh, the House Democrats didn't quite get that message. <laughs> and it's so frustrating, to, again, to know the urgency, to know that he should have been removed from office well, basically, before he even was inaugurated, for God's sake, during the transition, 100%. that's what it, it should have ended there somehow. Uh, but the fact that he was inaugurated, they, fine. And then from there, I mean, it, the fact that he has been president for two years plus now um, is in and of itself 
tragic because that's all time in which he's been able to normalize his behavior. And in fact, we've been seeing numbers now where, for example, his Twitter feed is getting read less and less and less and getting responded to less and less. And I think that's not something to necessarily celebrate because to me, it indicates that he's been normalized. Yeah, I think the longer he's in there, every day he's in there, it's normalizing it for sure. And that's why I also think that Nancy Pelosi is dead wrong with not pursuing appeasement proceedings. I understand at the Senate because they're a bunch of feckless, um, power-hungry, greedy people will not most likely remove him from office. But you cannot set a precedent of a president being able to do all of the horrible things we just mentioned and not say this will not stand in America. Mm-hmm. And you're dead right that he shouldn't have even been inaugurated. What they should have probably done, I think the most fair course of action would have been to put him in one of those elephant harnesses that, that helicopters airlift elephants out and just airlift him over the White House, drop him down just so he could touch the roof, and then bring him right to prison. I feel like that would have been the most fair combo. And completely entertaining. To see him all rigged up in the harnesses and everything like that, hanging from the helicopter, would have oh, been just been great. worth that its weight in gold. Great. <laughs> all right, well, you yeah, know let what? him try and grab some of his best people like he was in one of those grab dollar machines at the arcade trying to grab stuffed animals. And of course you won't be able to grab anything because those are rigged to have very, very soft hands, much like his tiny, tiny, tiny hands. (laughs) Okay. Well, on that note, you know, before we dig into your campaign for president, let's talk about you. Let's, let's make it all about you now, Ben. Uh, when did you first discover you got about time, Bob, (laughs) get around to it at some point. When did you first discover you could make people laugh? I always ask uh, all the comics I have on the show. I always ask them when. Is, when was that first? That first spark, that first light bulb that appeared over your head. It goes, "Hey, hey, I can kind of do this." When did that happen? I would say probably the first time that you laughed at my joke about ten minutes ago, and I, that's when I knew. <laughs> That is when I knew. I do the best I can. Um, I launching careers left. I'm like the new Johnny Carson. You really are. You really are. It's beautiful <laughs> to do that. And I'm the new Carson Daly and no one should listen to me. Um, okay. So I have been the funny guy my whole life since yeah. I was about five years old. I w- was able to make people laugh like almost at will. And I also at around maybe age six, six or seven knew I wanted to be a comedian the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not know that I wanted to run for office, but I did know that I want to wanted to um, wanted to make people laugh, entertain people, and be kind of a hybrid of Johnny Carson, yeah. who was my absolute role model as a TV host, meets George Carlin, who was my role model as a damn comedian. So, so like at five years old, you were aware of uh, of Johnny and and George Carlin and some of the comics who would appear on the Tonight Show at that point. That's I, that's admirable because I, I don't think I was aware of anything when I was five years old. I think I was aware of like right. Cake and and Bert and Ernie, and and beyond that is uh, I don't know what's going on out there in the world. I don't I don't know if I was aware of of the of the two of them at five. Carson, I'm sure I was, but probably by by like age seven or eight, I knew them well. And I think one of the great things that my parents ever did was I had a bedtime at whatever, 8 p.m. like any child, but I had a TV in my room and they never made me turn the TV off. (laughs) So I've been a night owl since I was eight or nine years old and was watching Johnny Carson every night and old SCTV uh, reruns and Saturday Night Live literally since I was a young child and it's just formed my brain into this 
comedic, sardonic, sarcastic, twist everything on its head brain, and I love it. Would you say that your, uh, I mean, obviously your political aspirations aside, would you say that you're more of a pure stand-up than someone who does improv, or do you feel like you're, you've got sort of one foot in each, each realm? I know there's like a, kind of a dividing line between those two things uh, in the, you know, among comedians where you're either kind of one or the other, and, and very seldom do you find someone who can do both to any degree of success. I mean, do you find yourself uh, kind of between two worlds, or do you really identify as a stand-up? I identify as a gender-fluid stand-up comedian, um, <laughs> but I am, um, no, I I identify as a stand-up comedian because that's, you know, where my bread is buttered and and it's what I am and what I get paid to do, but as far as what I love to do and the skills, I definitely am both. I started out in improv in improv troops the M- the yeah. other connection and the empty stage theater i was at the empty stage with Kristen wig when she was there wow um at the very beginning of my career and then i never left those roots i just ended up doing it in my stand-up back so my stand-up back is largely written but even my showtime special which is now on amazon prime called neurotic gangster yep. i do a lot of crowd work and i improvise a lot in my act whenever i go on the road i rarely do an hour that's just material i always talk to the crowd and make a bunch of it happen on the spot yeah. sometimes i do the entire hour 100 percent improvised sometimes that's live on facebook live so i definitely do both a lot of the gigs i've gotten in my career my hosting gigs my game show idiot test that's on netflix and game show network i improvise yeah. half of every episode yeah and that's the thing that a lot of people miss that actually hosting a show like that johnny carson amazing at improv uh you know as a as, a, as a game show host you are also uh exercising that particular aspect of your background and it, that doesn't often get lumped in as being pure improv even though it really really is uh and uh hosting any sort of show i know you work with uh with kevin smith's network and hosting a, a podcast is even uh, a form of improv. And so you're, you're, you're really uh, wired into that skill. Don't you think? 100%. Yeah. Please subscribe to my podcast last week on earth. You can follow the campaign and, and, you know, listen to all the things that are happening. I have an episode coming out this week with Doug Stanhope where he endorses my candidacy. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> wow. uh, and, but yeah, I improvise, you know, I have a, rough outline of the stories I want to cover. I know the stories and I improvise to make them funny and informative and engaging. Um, so I love both. I will never not be an improviser. I have been on hidden camera shows on NBC over the years. Like I improv in my blood, but, um, stand up is my love because it's just, there's nothing quite as, as exhilarating as getting on a stage and making people laugh with just your voice. It's pretty fun, just your thoughts and your voice. It's pretty exciting. Did that I've start? I've been so fortunate to be able to do it with like some of the best in the world opening on arena tours for Dane Cook and Chelsea Handler and got to play to 12,000 at a time so many times. I mean, that was mind-boggling. Yeah. But so- it also gave me the exact skills that are what I can use to take down Trump because um, he does rallies in arenas. Yeah. And... I've rocked arenas many times. We need somebody who can bring some of that improvisational flair that he has and take him punch for punch. I want to have a rally. If I get the nomination, I want to have a rally where I'm leading that audience and lock him up 
chance because he actually deserves it. Right. I want to point out the media in the back of the room like Trump does and say, look at the media back there. Nice people doing their job. Give them a round of applause. <laughs> Right on. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing that uh, Democrats aren't, at this point in time, completely invincible because it seems to me as if uh, we've got all the comedians, we've got all the funny people, we've got all the creative people. There's no reason why there should be an errant word or a ridiculous remark or something that's not grounded in, in fact or something that isn't completely and totally salient that destroys the Republicans with every word that's muttered. Because, again, we've got all of these fantastically creative people who can be uh, writing lines, writing talking points, writing memes, uh, producing this stuff for professional politicians who can then uh, deliver that in to, to large crowds. And it seems to me as if the fact that yeah. the Democrats are still struggling on messaging and things like that, it seems very frustrating given who uh, populates the Democratic Party, the wide variety of people, including yourself. And it seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? It's a hundred percent what you're saying. You're so right. It's, it's infuriating because the late night monologues are great every night and they need to be writing speeches for our candidates and um, they're not doing it. And whoever writes the white house correspondence dinner back when comedians and presidents attended that mm -hmm. um, back in the good old days, <laughs> yeah. they're brilliant, incisive, burning speeches. And that is what we need. And that's also part of why I threw my hat into the ring is exactly that, is that if they're not going to do it, if they're going to keep being cautious and running traditional campaigns, I just could not live with myself and not know what if I had run and it ended up being necessary that we needed a comedian to take him down and the Democratic electorate agreed with me and then the country agreed with me and I would have been able to stop this guy. And if I didn't, Trump just wins again. We get a great campaign from Elizabeth Warren or or Mayor Pete who might get the nomination and then they just lose to him because Trump just weaves his verbal darts around them and at them and through them mm -hmm. and our country goes down the drain. This is not an easy endeavor for a comedian to undertake by any means, as you may imagine. It you know, I have barely slept in the last month since our campaign launched and the two weeks leading up to that to get really all of our things gearing to go. I'm constantly on calls with my senior advisors who are comprised of um former Obama administration people and Hillary Clinton staffers and and I'm constantly doing interviews and podcasts. I'm constantly working on the messaging of the campaign and studying policy and doing town halls and trying to get the word out to every single person that I can. And it is very, very challenging to do a true grassroots campaign that unlike yeah. almost all of the other Democratic candidates that are doing call time for five hours a day with rich donors, I'm not even doing that. I'm focusing in 100% on real everyday Americans because I think that's exactly the crux. In addition to the fact that comedians, I think, can beat Trump better than the rest, I'm also running because we never have candidates these days who are real, regular people. Mm -hmm. We of the 23 candidates, other than me, who's the 24th, 100% of them are either career politicians or multi, multi-millionaires. And why do we keep electing one of those two categories of people and then being shocked when our policies do not shift to benefit everyday people? When 
the scale keeps getting tipped more and more towards the elite in this country. We need to try a regular person for a change. And that's why I'm running. Mm -hmm. And that's why we hope that people believe in that idea because keep, if you keep electing cautious politicians and multimillionaires and you're not seeing the change you want, it's literally the definition of insanity to keep doing the same thing and expect yeah. different results. And so that's why I'm asking people to please donate just $1 or whatever you can afford because these things are very expensive, but at least $1. We only have less than about seven, six or seven days left until our deadline to reach 65,000 donations of individual people. And I will get the last spot on the debate stage and you'll at least have a voice in there who represents you because he's a regular dude. Comedians who travel the road are regular people. I've spent <laughs> yeah. my life just traveling to every town around the country, eating chicken wings and getting drunk with regular folks. <laughs> that is the kind of person you should want to try in office, not a yeah. fake populist, not a fake man of people like Trump or not these politicians who intellectually understand your problems, but then get in power. And because it's only intellectual pursuit for them, they've so lost sight of what it is like to struggle, which I certainly have not. No. They don't fight tooth and nail for the change that we need. Yeah. And then please donate that money at Gleeb2020.com, G-L-E-I-B2020.com, my, my website, because we've got thousands of donations and we have to have a moment where you tell a bunch of your friends and get a real movement going, we're going to make this cut off. Right, right. And your goal is to get to at least 65000 right, in order to make the threshold for the debates. That's correct. Are you are you close? Are you nearing it? Are you do you still have a long way to go? We are not very close. We got a long way to go. That's what I'm saying is we need to have some sort of critical mass happen. We've got thousands, but we need we need to have a moment in this next week where people realize that, you know, Joe Biden's already having a scandal now where he's his campaign is plagiarizing language from the coal industry in their climate policy. Yeah. And it's not like plagiarism is something new for Joe Biden. It's what tanks his 88 campaign. Mm -hmm. It's I'm sure he's a nice guy. He seems like a great guy, but politicians lie. They get complacent and they get lazy. And comedians are known for speaking the truth and keeping it real. And yeah. that's what we need right now. And so, you know, the mainstream media has been very dismissive of my campaign in this first month. And we're working hard to combat that. The Washington Post finally is going to be interviewing me tomorrow. And, um, we're have a CNN show that's interested in having me on, but still is not pulling the trigger. And it's ridiculous. They instantly cover every single politician that runs, you know, Eric Swalwell, a 37 year old congressman who's running on one issue instantly is on every show and has no chance to win. But right. the, and they ask him even on, even on the daily show, show hosted by comedians. The first question is how are you differentiating yourself from this pack? Why did you need to run? Well, it's quite clear from all I just said, I differentiate myself very easily and bring something very different to this race. You would think the media, if they were not scared, feckless, lazy people would actually seize that opportunity. Not to mention a comedian just won by a landslide, the presidency in the Ukraine. And, you know, this raises a good question. I mean, I, uh, to be perfectly honest, I've been a little concerned that Trump's rise and Trump's, uh, I'm making dick quotes with my fingers, Trump's uh, victory uh, would give way to the notion that anyone can be president, leading to sort of a like a conga line of unqualified people running for president based on 
their social media reach or something like that. Remember the um, the recall election with Gray Davis and like everyone ran. There was Gary Coleman and Ariana Huffington and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And there was this li- long line of like 30 people who were all like porn stars and t- tabloid celebrities <laughs> running for governor of California. And my concern has been with Trump, that kind of opens the door to a lot of unqualified people running for president along the lines of Donald Trump, Donald Trump being the most unqualified president we've ever had in our nation's history. So I, I just want to ask you point blank, why are you qualified to be president, Ben Glebe? That's a very fair question. <laughs> and, you know, in in our time, in our lives, we're told that anybody can become president in this country. And it yeah. has not been true in recent years. Trump, that's the one benefit of Trump. I think I think of it as a benefit. The problem with Trump is not that he's a he's a regular person mm-hmm. or that he didn't have experience. Or he pretends to be a regular person. The problem is that he's person. an asshole. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's that he's an asshole and that he is an immoral, self-interested, disloyal, treasonous scumbag. And that is his yeah. problem. It's not like he doesn't understand the conventions of government or how to read his presidential daily briefing or how to salute our troops or how to go on a foreign trip. He's just a bad human being. He's a joke. And that is the lesson of Trump, not his lack of experience. We've had plenty of people without tons of experience that win elected office. Al Franken went from being a comedian into being a senator and was a great senator. Yep. Um, Barack Obama was only a was only in the Senate for two years, and he'd spent some time in the state Senate before that. But plenty of people run for office who don't have a ton of political experience within elected office. I don't think that's what matters. I think that's actually the problem. The problem is only electing career politicians who've been in the mix. So why am I qualified? have been in the mix for so long, they've lost the common touch. Why am I qualified? It's simple. Cory Booker, I supported his run for the Senate. Mm-hmm. And I was at a private fundraiser, and he gave this speech about all of the things he wanted to change in our society in the Senate. And I raised my hand and I said, look, I think you're a good guy, but you're saying all these great things you want to do. And we all know you're not going to be able to achieve those things in the Senate. The Senate's broken. And so why say it? And he said, seemed kind of caught off guard. And he goes, well, that's fair. You know, these days, it is true. Our system is very broken. And these days we can often be more effective as an artist or an activist. So that's the path that I chose to stay on being an artist and an activist. And so by Cory Booker's own reasoning, I'm more qualified to be president than he is. If I can affect more change by staying in the private sector until this moment in my life, then why do we still, because we are so afraid of actually finally moving forward with the change we know we need, why do we keep going to that definition of insanity and letting it rule our lives? So yes, Gary Coleman shouldn't be the governor, nor should a porn star most likely. But a comedian who, not just as a comedian, comedians in general are very honest, truth-telling people, and just that as a base is, I think, so much more of an improvement over most politicians. But I've been not just that. For over about 12 12 years now, I've been a political commentator. I've been a uh, contributor to CNN, to Fox News, co-anchored ABC News Digital, I have done election night coverage for ABC mm-hmm. News Digital. I've covered, I was on NPR for seven years covering 
politics, usually in a comedic way, but not always. But again, comedy cuts right to the truth. Isn't that what we finally want? Not just news yeah. that is spun at us or lazily reported. Cover the Democratic and National Conventions in 08 and 2012 for NPR. My podcast, like you mentioned, for eight years now, I've been doing a, po a podcast that is about politics. I chose to take whatever cachet I had in the comedy world and use it to help inform people about the important issues of our day because I found a real problem was that politicians were able to exploit people's lack of knowledge and lack of enthusiasm and lack of interest in our politics to use that ignorance to just run roughshod with our country. And so I took it as my mission to create a very engaging, funny podcast that was all about the important political issues of our day and deliver it in funny, dirty, gritty ways that got people engaged in politics that never, ever were before. And I think that is a pretty large contribution to our society, and certainly one that I think I would put up there with the accomplishments of a mayor in a small town or a young congressperson that has just been in the mix of a broken system and not able to affect any significant legislation to create the change they keep saying they want to create. Yeah. It's nice to talk, but it's better to do. And then in November, I have what I think is the biggest impact on our on, on helping our country, which is why I created, executive produced, was head writer and host of the Telethon for America. Mm -hmm. I wanted to help solve our tragically and, and always incredibly low turnout in our elections, especially midterms. And I wanted to do what I could then before running for office, before that was even a decision in, in my head um, that, I had, that I had officially made, I wanted to help make sure that Trump did not win both houses again and that yeah. there were some checks on his power. And so I created a never-before-done event, a nonpartisan event, that was a get-out-the-vote telethon that reinvented telethons. The first telethon ever was with the goal of raising zero dollars. And instead, we took pledges from people to vote the next day nice. and to form voting squads to bring out their friends to vote, to exponentially increase the turnout that we were expecting. And I recruited 95 of the biggest celebrities of our day. I had a phone bank being manned by Charlize Theron and Natalie Portman, Jane Fonda, Constance Wu, Lonnie Love, Bill Bellamy, um, Justin Thoreau, Chelsea Handler, Mary McCormick. I hosted it with Olivia Munn. We had Amy Schumer, Larry King, Dr. Phil, Pete Davidson, Ray Romano, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, wow. um, Jeffrey Ross. I put together this event that was all Sophia Bush. That was all about Deborah Messing, Sean Hayes. It was all about trying to make sure people voted, trying to answer their voting questions, give them resources to make sure they knew where their polling place was, yep. make sure we had... Uh, lawyers on from the election protection hotline who would tell people how to report voting ir irregularities, live sketches on stage to explain what to do if somebody tries to turn you away at the polls. All of this to try to, with the goal of trying to help create historic turnout in our midterm elections and these crucial, essential ones for our nation's trajectory. And lo and behold, the next day, we had historic voter turnout mm -hmm. in our country, the best overall midterm turnout since 1914 and record turnout ever among America's youth. That's something I did as a private citizen. Incredible. Not to mention that I brought that show and being at the helm of that show, I brought that show in under budget. We did it for one third or less of the cost of a show of like 
that would typically be of that size and scope. Mm-hmm. We did it almost entirely in three and a half weeks and shows like that typically take six months to a year. And the, and the amount of money that was left in that budget, I distributed it amongst the people who were the, the, that worked hard on the show instead of keeping all the profits for myself. And I think that's an amazing template for the kind of president I would be and for the kind of change I would try to bring by thinking out of the box, reinventing things, solving our problems from a different way, from an outside way that comedians are good at thinking about things from different angles. So please tell me what any senator or congressperson or small town mayor has done that is more effective at creating change than that. And in fact, um, one of the things that uh, a lot of uh, incoming presidents uh, are stymied by, and they campaign on change. For example, Barack Obama, I mean, the change was one of his main things, hope and change. And he wanted to change the way, fundamentally change the way uh, the United States functioned, uh, especially in Washington. And he got to the office. Um, and again, I, I card-carrying Obama bots. So this isn't necessarily a criticism, but this is to say that Barack Obama arrived in Washington and from the perch of 1600 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, much different than his seat in the Senate, he was stymied by the fact that it was so impossible to get things done in that city. How do you intend to get past the bureaucratic obstacles? And uh, obviously the uh, traditional press is uh, is an obstacle in there too. Um, what's your plan as far as uh, pursuing change? Well, it's very easy. First, I'm not going to go to the White House. I'm going to run the country from my home here in the San Fernando Valley. That will help. Um, secondly, <laughs> Wait, are you serious? I'm joking, joking. No, I'm totally joking. Oh, okay. Um, gotcha. Of course, I will, of course, I will go to the White House. Um, here's how you do it. First of all, let me just say, I think that it is very true that Obama was stymied by some of that. But he also has an amazing list of accomplishments that he achieved in Washington. He was not successful at changing the culture. Yeah. And in fact, that probably got worse, but he, you know, signed the affordable care act to rescue us from the greatest recession since the great depression. Oh, yeah. He ended the war in Iraq. He killed Osama bin Laden. He did his amazing, uh, recovery and investment act to help our growth. He did so much for LGBT rights and legalizing gay marriage. He saved our auto industry. He did so many things that were very, very important. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau under his watch. Lots of huge progress that was very, very important. But I think one of his biggest mistakes was A, squandering with politeness when he had both houses of Congress was not pushing through much more and also was going for healthcare first because healthcare is historically the most divisive issue in our country. And it just brought the fighting gloves out from the Republicans. And then Obama again was too polite in not getting it through. So the way I would do it when he had the chance. And so we had to do kind of a watered down version. And so what I would do is I would, I'm intentionally trying to craft a lot of my, ideas and my thought process is how do you present it to both sides? How do you get Republicans across the country on board for these issues? How do you not stake out positions that are phrased in such a way that they are completely off-putting to people who have very held beliefs that are very different than yours? Mm -hmm. And so you try to bring both parties together nationwide while not standing at all for the old bullshit games and the obstructionist games of the Republicans in the Senate, of the Mitch McConnells, of 
you have that comedy writing team that crushes them. You have the great clip montages that you release of the completely hypocritical ways McConnell has spoken about Supreme Court justices under under Democrats or Republicans. You go to their constituents and you get camp you get organized on the ground campaigns that shame them for putting politics over the people they are there to represent. So you bring the parties together and you shame the, the politicians that do not that clearly brazenly do not have their, their own people's best interests at heart. You have to play tough while also bringing people together. It's a delicate balance, but you, you bring people together while being very rough at any sort of political bullshit that happens. And you just call it out repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. That'll be my hypnotic language will be, you are a hypocrite. You said the exact opposite when you were in power. You do not deserve an opinion on this issue, sir. Yeah. You just have to be tougher. And Obama ends up a little bit too much playing that game mm-hmm. of politeness in Washington after that first year. He was amazing when he went into the Republican meeting that they invited him to and for two hours took their questions and eviscerated them. And he lost a little bit of that spark. And so we just do the best we can to get past that. And I think with my social media skills and with my comedic skills and my ability to listen to people and to find common ground between people and to try to come up with unique solutions for our problems. You just work until you get things done. You make clear the urgency of these issues and you keep bringing people back. You don't get lost in the minutia. You keep bringing people back to the urgency. So taking take climate change, for example, it's been for too long framed as conservatives have for too long been able to frame it as, oh, look at these tree-hugging liberals mm-hmm. that are, are so emotional and want to save the environment. We care about our businesses and our own putting food on the table more. So instead, you play to their psychology mm-hmm. and you say, you're supposed to be the tough party, right? You're supposed to be not afraid of a fight. This is the fight of our lives. Are you macho enough to take this on? Are you tough enough to take on this fight to save the planet? You're in Armageddon, the movie, right now. <laughs> Let's step up and save our lives? Or are you chicken? Are you afraid of this big fight? Do you not think you have the capacity to help transform our economy to, to the future? Are you afraid of mother nature? Mm-hmm. Let's go, let's fight. And you phrase it in a way, and you frame it in a way that gets everybody rallied and pumped and excited and plays to our egos instead of allowing the framing to, to, to say, oh, it's them being soft and us being tough. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. So many of our problems have been framed in the exact opposite way than they have been for a very long time. And again, insanity. Don't try the same tactics and expect different results. Yeah, yeah. We need something different. Yeah, I mean, along those lines, um, the the climate crisis aside, because obviously that is, to me, the number one existential crisis for all of humanity, regardless of what country, regardless of what state, regardless of political party, if this continues the way it's been going, the climate crisis, uh, we're all screwed, indiscriminate of who we are. Um, But all of that aside, uh, it seems to me as if the number one priority uh, for the next president, indeed the next Congress, will be to pass a series of reforms of not only 
how we conduct elections in this country, but also the the presidency itself to prevent another Donald Trump. Because as far as I'm concerned, Donald Trump has created a big uh, Donald Trump-sized hole in the wall, uh, almost like the Kool-Aid man. And w- my concern, going back to what I was saying before, my concern is a bunch of other Kool-Aid men like Trump are going to go careening through that same opening. And so therefore, the next president, the next Congress has to work together in order to close that hole, in order to spackle over and make sure it's reinforced, make sure no one else can come through this giant set of loopholes that the guy's created. One, are you willing to regulate your own job, sign legislation that regulates the presidency? And and two, what's your plan for electoral reform? I know you have some ideas along those lines. Sure. So I will bring common sense regulation to the presidency for sure. Mm-hmm. But I also do think with such a broken system and the fights being as urgent as they are, you don't want to take away all executive powers. You just need to make sure we are electing people that are going to use them for good. And you have to, and to do that, you have to fix certain systemic things that enable people who are not in the country's best interest for taking the office. So yeah. you have to get rid of the electoral college. It's one of the most urgent things you have to, we're in a time now we're no longer in our colonial days when you need the Pony Express to reach people. We have the internet and phones and TVs and radios and messages get everywhere. And so it should be one person, one vote. You should be able to have your voice count equally, not your state count equally, your voice count equally, mm-hmm. one person. And so when the popular vote by millions of people votes for one person, that person needs to be president. We need to take back our democracy. That's why the biggest theme of my campaign is take our democracy back is we have to take back our democracy, take back our democracy in every single way. So we need to get rid of the electoral college. We need to get rid of the outsized influence of money in our politics. We have to ban the revolving door. We have to make sure politicians cannot become lobbyists. We have to get the money out of our elections. We have to make sure it does not take millions and millions and millions of dollars to run effective campaigns, even for lower offices. We have to return to paper ballots so that we actually know we can count an accurate count of our elections and that the the, uh, Russians can't infiltrate our systems as they already have done and are going to try to do worse. We have to put our foot down so strongly and punish any nation that interferes in our sovereignty in our elections or on social media. We must make the social networks be absolutely certain who every user on their platforms are so you cannot have the influence of foreign entities in our elections. You must do it. And I know they can do it now because just to get my Facebook account approved to run political ads took us two weeks that we didn't have to even lose because they made us verify our physical address and then go, go through a bunch of other hoops. They figured out already how to do it. They must do it across the board all their users. There should, no, there should be no more true anonymous profiles online. You don't have to post your real name publicly, but the, the company better know who you are. You're going to be posting political content for sure. God, you're um, so right about that. Absolutely. It's just we cannot allow these ghosts to run rampant through our politics and through our nation. It's just something that must stop. And that's why also net neutrality is something that I would restore and protect mm-hmm. fiercely because in a time when so many of our rights and our freedoms are being infringed upon, the only way we can fight back as a populace is through the open exchange of ideas 
and the public square is the internet now. And to allow that to be tiered or regulated based on financial ability is the death knell of freedom, and I will not allow it. And so we will protect that in a very, as a very high priority. And so um, those are just some of the ways in which we will stand up for the America that we know that we have, but we also must, we must close loopholes where our biggest corporations are not paying any taxes. We must give an earned in an expansion of the earned income tax credit that, that I'm calling, it's an idea that I studied a lot from what Robert Reich suggested called the cost of living tax refund. Mm-hmm. He calls it the cost of living refund where you expand a monthly, if they want it, if not yearly, you can get a monthly refund to people who are low and middle income workers. So they actually have the ability to save a little bit of money for emergencies, for their retirement. So that if you're working a full time job in this country, you are able to live and succeed. We need to empower people to be able to, to live the lives that they always envisioned in this country. I'm a capitalist. I believe in the upward mobility possibilities of everybody in this nation, but I'm a compassionate capitalist Yeah. because without policies that support and help lift people up and let people know that they can take that risk, they can start that business because if they fall, it'll be there for them. That's the America that I know and love and which is the one that I will fight for. And we've lost sight of that compassionate side. We only care about the bottom line dollar. And that is not the country that I'm proud to live in. I want a country where we take care of all of us. It's ironic to me that, and sad, that the Republicans in power care so much about protecting our border. Supposedly, they care so much about it. If that's true, it's to protect what's inside that border, and that is 300 million Americans, Mm -hmm. not just some at the very top. And so I'm going to make sure we have consistency of our morals, our values, and our ideas and consistency in our policies that we will protect the people that we claim to care about. No more political points for politics sake. You know, um, I've always been curious to ask this question of a presidential candidate. And in fact, you could ask the same question of any candidate for any office, but it really applies mostly to the presidency because it is such a strenuous gig to to actually run for president. Yes, I inhaled. (laughs) Yes, I inhaled. (laughs) Well, that's that's not necessarily the question. At this point, I think that question is complete. (laughs) I've inhaled 20 times since we've been talking. So, I mean, let's face (laughs) that. But the the question really is, and and you've been experiencing this quite a bit in the past, especially over the past couple of weeks when you haven't been sleeping and so on, the strain and stress of running for president aside – it is kind of a full-time job. And I think one of the reasons why we see so many independently wealthy people or people who come from money running for president is because they kind of can. They can afford to not collect a paycheck. I mean, obviously, we see senators and governors running who, while they're they're serving. But in terms of being an ordinary person... Uh, Luckily, they don't have to get anything done either. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, how do you intend to? I mean, let's say... Um, you're able to make the threshold for the debates. You become one of the the top 20 that are participating in the debates and you're a legitimate candidate and you're considered among the, the, the top tier. You're no longer, um, you know, maybe someone who uh, people would see as a fringe candidate. You're 
fully legitimate and you're plowing forward and Iowa is around the corner. What do you, how do you intend to um, make ends meet personally? How do you intend to continue paying rent in the San Fernando Valley and so on um, while you're running for president? That's a good question. And that's also where having a comedian run for office is a very good choice mm-hmm. is my job. While if you ever do want a working man to be your candidate, you have to be able to allow them to work a little bit to make a living because otherwise you're always only going to be led by the ultra rich. But luckily as a comedian, my job is to travel to towns around the country, just like you do in a campaign and speak to people just like you do in a campaign. Yeah. And I can do my stand-up acts with my eyes closed. And so <laughs> I have just a certain amount of dates booked in the upcoming six, seven months from now that I will go to those towns. I'll do my one or two shows in the evening for one or two hours only. Mm-hmm. And other than that, when I'm in those towns, I will campaign. I will hold town halls. I will meet regular voters. I will get to know the problems that affect every single American. And I will make sure that that time is used so well that the only hours that I won't be focused on the campaign will be the two hours a night when I'm on stage, which these candidates take off time at the end of their nights and spend with their families. And I'll just be on the road during those very few dates. We're talking like another seven or eight cities that I have to perform in during that time. And it will be incredibly useful. I in fact want to wherever possible use the comedy club infrastructure to hold campaign events during the day, to hold town halls, to make myself as accessible as I always have been. And even during those times on stage, I'm still, like I said, talking to people in the crowd, getting to know people, what they do, what issues affect them. And my crowd work has already become much more um, about bigger systemic issues and is trying to, so it's all benefiting the the same cause. Mm -hmm. And, um, if it gets down to the place where I'm the nominee or about to become the nominee and I'm about to go heads up against Trump for six months, I just won't work at all on anything else, obviously. And, um, we'll go six months without that much income and count on those very tiny, uh, residual checks from ice age and the book of life. (laughs) See, that's the way. That's the way to look at it. Outstanding. And plus, bonus, Ben, you will uh, actually wear clothing that fits you properly, unlike our current president. So there's there's something else that nope, Americans can look forward to. No, I'm going to go bigger. I'm going to wear triple XL everything <laughs> and just walk around like MC Hammer Pants style, but top and bottom. <laughs> and I will stay in that White House until they airlift me out with a elephant helicopter. <laughs> The website is Glebe 2020. One of the things I know you're going to do uh, once you're president is reverse the I before E rule. I think that should uh, be eliminated right away. No more rule saying you have to put I before E. Of course, it's Glebe, G-L-E-I-B 2020.com. Again, www.glebe2020.com if you want to donate, if you want to support Ben's campaign. Thank you so much, my friend. Really appreciate talking to you, and, uh, and thanks for your time today. It is my pleasure, and let me just say one last time, we don't need this early in the race to have an endorsement. Nobody should be decided as to who they're voting for yet, but if you like yeah. anything that I had to say today, and you think that this voice would be helpful in our presidential politics this go-around, please just donate $1 or whatever you can afford at Bleed2020.com, and let's get an outside voice in this race. Bob, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It was really, really wonderful to chat with you. Thanks, Ben. It was a real pleasure. Good luck, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye.